Reflecting on the water As the sun shuts her eyes Don't know why you'll uncover Watch the tide rolling With the moonlight Everything is silent On this wheezy piano night This is Missing Magnolias, and we are here today with a lovely guest. We have Miss Whitney Sorry with us. Welcome, Whitney. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us. We're starting a little bit on an odd topic with child rage, and then we have someone here who's going to tell us the facts surrounding parenting and how to cultivate lives and humans that are unlikely to grow up and murder other people. That's the goal. Exactly. When I was first exposed to the topic of when parenting goes really bad, I was in grad school. I was teaching an intro psych course and looking for content that would be relevant to an intro 110 class for non-majors in the psychology department. And I stumbled upon this grainy 1980s, 25-minute documentary about this really, really cute little girl named Beth and the terrible things that Beth was doing. What we found out were the traumas that she had experienced in her life. And then the question sort of became, as you stare into the eyes of this sweet little girl who's shoving pins into animals, molesting her baby brother and murdering baby chicks. How do we get here? And what do we do when we are here? You definitely got it right that she's a cutie pie with those little 80s bangs that she's got going on. And she talks so plainly about her desire to stab mommy and daddy and she wants to see them die. How she got here, it's interesting. I always question talk therapy with kids that young, knowing what we know about memory. And she talks about remembering these horrible things that happened to her when she was one. It's interesting to think that she has this idea that this stuff happened to her. I don't know if there's any proof that any of that stuff happened to her. Not that it didn't, but I always find that interesting. Like what has she been told What has she been led to believe about what happened to her? And how has that kind of contributed to her beliefs about herself and the world and parents and authority in general? But yeah, at the very least, I think we know that she was super neglected, pretty much left alone all day. Dad would just leave a box of kicks for an all day. And then it was just her by herself with the baby all day with her kicks for who knows how long, because I think mom died when she was one. So just total neglect. And then even if you add on top of that, the abuse is just a horrible start for her and her little brother. It's no wonder she had some issues, but those are definitely intense issues. Not everybody who goes through neglect and abuse ends up having homicidal tendencies. It's a wild story, which makes a real good documentary. I don't know if either of you followed Beth. Maybe this was a success story because I read that she became a nurse. Yeah, it seems bizarre. The type of therapy that she ended up going into, it seems like she actually got adopted by the therapist 
which is super not cool in the world of mental health. But also the therapist who ended up adopting her wasn't even a therapist to begin with. She was just a normal person. So I guess that's why I can't expect her to follow the ethical guidelines. Adopted her, got really attached to her, which is good. That's the goal and helped her to grow up and be successful. I even read that not just a nurse, but she apparently was an awarded nurse. Really good at what she was doing working on her master's and working with her second adopted mom therapist to kind of promote the attachment therapy that they were doing. I would love to be able to chat with her. That would be such an interesting conversation. I have so many questions. Can you tell us a little bit about child abuse, neglect, and what some outcomes are? Abuse can take lots of different forms. Neglect is neglect. is neglect. I think most people can at least theorize what that is. Obviously, physical abuse is probably what people think of most often. Sexual abuse is pretty common. But then there's also emotional abuse, teaching kids that either their feelings, their emotions are not okay, or at least they're, they're not to be trusted, which really messes with us. Because if you learn very young that emotions are not welcome or acceptable, and or that your emotions can't be trusted, it really builds an instability in yourself because emotions aren't something we can like avoid. Abuse can also take other forms. I mean, mostly with kids, those are kind of the big ones. With other types of abuse, like financial abuse and stuff like that, sometimes we'll see in similar kinds of family structures as the kids that we're talking about with an abusive parent who's also abusing the other caregiver, the other parent keeping them really isolated and dependent on the abuser so that they can't leave and they won't leave because there's nowhere for them to go. It's really interesting to me how common these types of relationships end up looking. They have a cycle that you can almost map out of how it starts with really, really small things. And eventually, if the cycle continues and continues and continues, leads to physical abuse and can lead all the way to death. And the number one outcome that we see of kids growing up in abuse homes is they become abusive themselves. If this is what you know, if this is how you've learned to interact with people and to interact with the world, this is what you know until you know something different. On the really extreme ends, like Beth, we see issues with being able to do like what we would consider to be really normal human stuff, to be able to empathize and connect and to accept care she didn't have a choice to be totally independent. And she continued that through her childhood to where she couldn't accept love and care from adults. Our human brains are not meant to be like that. The first five years of life, our brains are totally focused on attachment to a caregiver and understanding self. Poor Beth missing out on that normal, me and mother are one, mother takes care of me, mother protects me, mother feeds me. And also the normal kind of detachment that we have through young childhood and all the way into adolescence. I think her brain just really felt unsafe. This was the first time I watched this grainy video, as Michelle put it, alone in a room by myself, watching this little girl just share some horrible, horrible details. But it was so striking, this idea that empathy, we as people take for granted that it's a learned behavior and it's not necessarily ingrained. I think because most of us live in a home that does the trick, we don't have to think about building our conscience. It's definitely a process. 
and unfortunately we don't really see when things go wrong it's really troubling I think a Beth story is kind of unique in that we have this picture of when things were going really, really wrong. And now as an adult, seeing that she's made it out, even in her extreme end of trauma, it's unique, I think, in that she got better. She lives a, from what we can tell, a pretty normal life. That's probably not the case for a lot of kids that go through as terrible of a start as she did. I wanted to know about what do we need to do for these people who don't want to create little bets, but might be starting to. I think the good thing is that most parents who care enough to want to get better are by definition not creating little bets. So that's the good sign. And I think this really gets to like the main thing that I think is hard for parents, which is just admitting that you want to be a better parent. There's so much shame attached to that. And there's so much stigma even as an expert, I don't do it right all the time. This naturally leads me to want to talk about the work that I do in the jail. These people are in the jail awaiting their sentence, awaiting trials, lots of degrees of type of person in there for sure. Even in this environment, when I come to them as a fellow parent, there's just so much shame with being willing to say, I don't know what I'm doing. Can you tell us a little bit about the topics that you cover in these parenting classes and and the kind of people that are there? Maybe give us a, a day in the life. It's a totally voluntary program. And just by nature of that, I'm getting a certain slice of people. And because it's a jail type of program, I get a wide variety in terms of like charges and issues. The program is set up to be six weeks before they graduate. It's a quick program. The curriculum is meant to be 10 weeks, but we shorten it down to six because we're in a jail, because people tend not to stick around very long. We spend quite a bit of time on development, so helping them to have a theoretical framework of what's normal and what's not, because that's attached to self-worth for our kids. If we expect too much of our kids and they physically, developmentally, they cannot reach that expectation, they're going to suffer. But also, if you don't expect enough out of your kids and they're capable of doing more, they're going to suffer from that, too. Development and self-worth, definitely a big piece of it. We also talk about communication. A lot of that is centered around abuse, learning how to communicate respectfully. How do you respect someone's feelings? How do you communicate your feelings in the heat of the moment? So that's a big piece of it. And for a lot of the people in the program, feelings is a tough one because they have grown up in homes where feelings were not welcome, not acceptable, or they are sober for the very first time in a long time. So this is the first time they've actually been feeling feelings in sometimes decades. And we also talk about nurturing oneself, which for the women, there's just, I swear something biologically, when you have a baby, your brain puts that baby first all the time. And a lot of us culturally have been trained that like as women we're supposed to put everybody else first we're caregivers we're supposed to give care but I mean that cheesy you can't pour from an empty cup it's true stuff I got nothing to give my kids if I've got nothing so nurturing oneself and then probably the most popular topic where we get a lot of discussion is on discipline this is the south so lots of spanking which unfortunately for a lot of us who grew up in homes where spanking was the norm, now we know that the the outcomes of spanking are not good. 
looking at all the alternatives that we have to spanking and kind of getting the buy-in, first of all, the spanking isn't effective. And then how do you actually implement these other forms of discipline? That's the gist of it. What all we cover. How has COVID impacted this? Prison visits are tough enough. Is it a remote situation or is it like a 50-50 or how does that work? Oh, it's such a mess. So this is another thing about doing this program in a jail as opposed to a prison. Already, normal days pre-COVID, there is no contact visitation in our jail. The only visitation they have is over the screen. They have kind of like a Zoom system set up. That is attached to other stuff in the jail as well. So unfortunately, if the behavior in the dorm is less than ideal. One of the first forms of punishment that they have in the jail is they lose their tablets. Visitation gets taken away pretty frequently, which again, we know from the research is not good for them, not good for the kids. Pre-COVID, this program offered the only contact visitation that existed in our jail at all. The moms and dads would switch weeks. So moms would have contact visits on Friday. We'd have an hour and a half after group where kids between a certain age range, which again changes depending on who's in charge, can come up and spend some good time with their parents. Then the next week, the the dads would get it. And then the following week, back to moms. So it was giving them frequent visits, which are so important in maintaining that attachment and rebuilding attachment and practicing new skills that they're learning in group. Since COVID, the visitation has been shut down. So we haven't had kids in the jail in a long time. While we do have the support of the system and that they recognize it's a good program, it's also a difficult program on their end because it requires so much deputy support and availability. There usually isn't a whole lot of kickback when they talk about taking visitation out of the jail, except from me and from the incarcerated parents because it makes their job a lot easier not to have to bring kids up and bring kids down and maintain security. But the good thing is we've been doing this program in the jail for so long, they can't ignore how good it is and how helpful it is. And so it's always one of those things where I know it'll come back. What do you say to the people who say that it's traumatizing to bring children to jails? Oh my gosh. So this is a worry that I hear from the parents in group. Some of them don't want to invite their kids to come for visitation because they're worried and they're scared their kids are going to get traumatized. I absolutely hear it from the caregivers on the outside, whoever's taking care of the kids. First, I always reinforce how kind and how lovely it is that they're worried about their kids in this way and tell them what a good parent you are, that this is something that you're thinking about. Because it's so selfless of them because they want to see their kids but they're willing to stop and think like, what is this going to do to my kids? And I think that's huge. Like that's the kind of thinking that I want them to have in this program. And then we have the benefit of going to the research. The research shows that visitation is helpful as long as it is supported visitation. So there is some research. So for elementary age kids, the location of the visit is really important, that it looks like a place that you'd want to visit with your parent instead of like looking like prison. They talk about the importance of toys, having toys and games, having fun stuff for them to do takes away the idea that I'm in jail or I'm in prison. The other thing that we see from the research for the older kids is that just visitation is helpful. 
the older kids have longer histories of stuff with their parents. And so having mental health people available to help them when conversations get hard has been really, really good. We've had some kids that have been willing to come and confront their parents. Like, hey, you told me you weren't coming back here and you're back here. Being able to work through some of those feelings. So having some kind of mental health support is really, really important. The other thing that we know is that visitation for really little ones before age three is a little more iffy that coming and going can be traumatic. Can you tell us a little bit about some differences you'd see in the community setting versus an incarcerated setting? Because I know you work in both types of settings and with both types of parents. Generally, not a huge difference. Once you get people in and invested and buying into the program, it's pretty much the same thing, just a different location, different outfits. The number one thing that I see is different between the two groups is just in the very beginning, because the folks in the jail are choosing this program, they're coming in with a little bit more buy-in. Some of the people on the outside are coming to this parenting class because they've been court ordered. Some of them have DCFS cases that have required them to come to parenting classes. And so getting them to buy in, you have to use some different skills. From what I've read, both the parents and the the children seem like victims in this situation. It must be so hard for those milestones for both the parent and the child for them to not be present. Have you guys been able to reconcile that or in some ways boost morale and kind of bridging that gap for those major life moments? We talk a lot about being involved as much as you can. Some of the parents are lucky enough that they'll have family members that do a video visit with them on birthdays. So mom or dad can watch the kids open their gifts and still be involved and seeing happy birthday and all that kind of stuff. For a lot of them, we talk also about creating new traditions. What could it look like for you to have Christmas with your kids while you're in here and they're out there? Regardless of how involved you get to be, For some of them, it's doing a lot of letter writing. Even if you can't mail the letters, writing the letters and saving them so that when you can mail them, you can, or when you can give them to the kids, you can. So you can show them when they're old enough to understand that I was with you, even if I couldn't be with you. It's about being creative and relying on what other people might have to help us to build the new traditions. So what I love the most about this is... We rarely take the time to humanize people in the justice system. And I think as a researcher who is predominantly victim-focused, it feels sort of like a betrayal sometimes. How dare we humanize these people who have hurt other people in so many terrible ways? Or at least that's the thought. Right, right. Jail is someone who's hurt someone else. So I guess I ask you this really big question. How do we get buy-in? from the community who says these people are bad people and they don't deserve these things. We know in the world of social psychology, this idea of us versus them, we can distance ourselves so much from others, from these bad people. I would never kill someone. So anybody who would kill someone is a bad person. And that's how the system is set up to work. And that's how the system is definitely run. That's why we can't always have kids up in the jail because they're bad people and we got to make sure we have security and all that stuff. But I think 
from the research, what we know about how we change this idea of us and them is that the them have to become us. So the only way I've seen people kind of change their minds is when they get to know an incarcerated or a formerly incarcerated person and find out that they're just a normal human like us. That's when suddenly you see people soften a little bit. Okay. What happens if we have someone in our family, cousin such and such comes up and says, you know, what's her name? She's got this kid. He started drowning cats. What kind of advice do you give if you're in the world and you come upon a baby bed? Number one warning sign, something needs to happen now is hurting animals or other things that can't fight back hurting young children, hurting animals, big red flag, big warning sign that there's some stuff that needs to be taken care of. Getting into therapy, ASAP, that's the big thing. Fortunately, unfortunately, there's a lot of different places it can go. Doesn't always necessarily mean that that's going to be the best place to go. My general advice for everybody when it comes to mental health is find somebody that you feel like you click with. Find somebody that you feel like understands you, you understand them, you have a good relationship, you like their plan, and that over time you see results. There's no shame in seeking outside help. It doesn't mean anything about us that our kids need help. They, turns out, they are also human. If anyone that's listening is moved by the things that you've had to say, how can they get involved and how can they help? Getting involved in local politics, knowing who is running for local office, especially the office of sheriff. Sheriff is an elected position and has a direct impact on the kinds of stuff that we've been talking about. That's the first thing. When it's not election time, pay attention to your local sheriff. Speak up, ask hard questions. On the other end, find out what is going on in your local facility. That's probably the first step. If you want to do something that's more involved, if you are near a prison, if you've got a local jail, ask them what's happening, what's available for incarcerated parents and their kids. I think the biggest thing working in this type of system, and again, I can't speak for every system, but our local system, the biggest thing I've learned is be persistent. Sometimes they get really, really excited about an idea and then stuff happens and they get distracted. But if it's the priority in your mind, be persistent. Funds are always a big deal too. So if you are somebody who's good at raising money, you will be invaluable to programs like this. And that really makes it even more possible for programs like this to start and to continue in the system because the system is not particularly well-funded. I think that's a good handful of ways to get started. Folks can always reach out to me too. I'm sure we can share contact info and whatnot. And I can always try and help point them in whatever direction they're looking for. What would you say to undergrads who want to grow up and be you one day? The good thing is that there's no wrong way to do it. The undergrads that I work with, uh, they're just so anxious about finding the right path that's going to lead them to where they want to go. Explore. You got tons of different paths you can take to get here. The next important thing, if you think this is a population you want to work with, you probably need to get in somehow, ask for an internship, ask to shadow somebody so you can actually get in and see what it's like, because it may end up being not what you expect, 
look into the research, the more you learn, the better foundation you'll have for practical skills and being able to do stuff if and when you end up in the field. I think when we think of crime, these are the people that we forget about. Thank you so much for the work you do for your organization and educating people on this topic. This work is not easy. Emotionally, it takes a toll. What do you do in your own experience to stay in good spirits? And what advice do you have for other people that might be doing similar work as you? It definitely gets hard. I think the hardest part is just trying to work with the system, seeing so much value and knowing what the research says about what this is supposed to be. And then having limits put on that is depressing. I think some of the things that keep me going are having people who are on my team who I can go and complain to and they get it. Having those people who can empathize with you, whether it's like friends or whether it's like professionally going to a counselor and talking about how difficult it is. The other thing that I think has been really helpful and then unfortunately this is something that only comes with time is seeing the cycle of how there's going to be really really good days and then there's going to be days that are not so good but you know that eventually there's going to be really really good days again well thank you so much i think that this will be really valuable to our listeners i think we tricked you we lured you in with child of rage so that we could talk to you about stuff that would touch your cold little hearts just like it touches mine and force us to sit in the uncomfortableness that is the gray area there is no good versus evil at the end of the day and when we think like that we leave behind an entire generation of kiddos we're going to struggle and suffer And their life will be harder because we choose to sit in that uncomfortableness or we refuse to sit in it. So thank you so much. Thank you. Anytime.